John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, happy Father's Day, everybody. Um, it's a good day to uh, honor fathers. I know we just spent, like last month, we were honoring mothers and just, um, I just think it's, uh, it's really, uh, I don't know, this morning for me, just with the kids and, and with Ashley, um, just reminds me of some of the more important things in life about family and um, being a father and what the importance of all of that. And, um, but there's a lot of things that get stirred up in my heart about the Father's Day and Mother's Day and the holidays similar to that. Um, and it's for those who um, would be considered the fatherless or the motherless, uh, those who might be uh, spending their Father's Day um, for the first time without their father, or for the this is this is something that you have grown accustomed to, or same thing with Mother's Day, and so just remembering um, you as well in prayer today. Uh, we're resuming our, our series through the Gospel of John, and we're gonna we're gonna do this um, on and off for quite a while, and we'll do some periodic pauses. Uh, last week we we did one, um, and and these pauses are really just to address things in, in the life of our church, things that need to be uh, discussed and, and talked about, things that are important that pertain to life and godliness for us. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to also see a lot of this walking through the gospel of John. Um, but uh, so, you, so we'll, we'll be on and off, and, and next week we're going to pause again. Uh, last week we stopped and talked about generosity and talked about giving, and we talked about it a whole bunch. And I, I, I would say that if you uh, have 
a lot of spare time uh, to, to stop and, and check out the, the sermon from last week. It, it is a family uh, conversation. It is a church family conversation, and so um, take some time uh, this week to maybe go back and, and revisit uh, that message if you weren't here last week. Uh, because it specifically has to do with possessions, with money, how we exercise generosity, um, how we give as uh, believers, as a uh, people of God. And so we'll hit John. We'll jump back in where we left off two weeks ago. We're in week five now. Um, although, we're, again, we're, we're taking pauses. Next week, uh, we'll actually stop again and hear from our Kenya team. Um, they just kind of rolled into town last night. Uh, so giving them a week, I, I know just if you've ever traveled uh, internationally and have gone on something like an exposure trip to Kenya uh, for a week or more, um, you can't process everything in a few hours and be able to communicate that to anyone. Uh, and so you're going to, for those of you who didn't go, you're going you're gonna to hit up some, some, of the, some of our family who went to Kenya and, and you're going to say, hey, tell me something about it, tell me all that. And they're just going to kind of look at you with this blank stare because they're processing. They don't have a lot to share with you right now. I, I know that's true for me whenever I take these kinds of trips. And so we're going to give them a week or so to process and then share with us next week about the trip. Um, so that's what next week's um, gathering w- will look like. Um, and as is a custom, we will stop sometime in November. Uh, this is the plan. I'm just kind of giving you the plan for the Gospel of John. We'll stop in November, um, end of November, to pick up our normal Advent season where we celebrate the coming of Christ and we look forward to the coming of Christ and we spend a few weeks preparing our hearts and just preparing our minds for uh, Christmas um, and what that means. So today we're back in the Gospel of John. We're still in chapter one, but we're going to finish chapter one today. Um, and we're going to be talking about, just to give you a background, a broad view, today we're going to be talking about um, people pointing others to Jesus. Um, we, we use terms like evangelism, um, you know, things like that, where, where we would say, you know, we're, we're sharing Christ with others, we're telling people about the gospel of Jesus. Uh, and with that being said, I want to, I, and I, you know, obviously I, you know, I know most of you in the room well enough to know where you are in your faith, but I don't want to assume anything for anybody. And so if you, would, if you would say that you're one who's not sure yet, if you've put your whole, wholehearted faith in Jesus, um, then I want to say welcome, and this is going to be kind of a weird sermon uh, because we're going to be talking about how we encourage one another to point people to Jesus. Um, but I want you to know that if you're still thinking through this and not sure um, it, of, of the claims of Christ. We want to be able to give an opportunity um, for you to belong uh, before you believe, to be a part of the community of God uh, while you explore the claims of God um, through Jesus Christ. And so I want to be honest at the same time. My prayer and our prayer as a church should always be that people put their faith in Jesus because of the gospel. That should always be our encouragement and our challenge that we don't want to skirt around that issue we don't want to say, well, you know, it's just kind of, we don't want to put it in front of you and shove it down your throat and, and keep it in your face. Uh, we do want to put Jesus on display with the way we treat one another, with the way we reach this community, which, the way we live our lives and the way we worship God. Um, and we do that with the hopes that some would put their faith in Jesus. Um, so that being said, uh, I'm not really apologetic about um, today's message and the, the, the passion of evangelism and pointing people 
uh, to Jesus. Our church, this church family, is about making disciples and mobilizing the gospel. That's what we're about. Uh, so we, we, we are unapologetic about uh, sharing our faith and pointing people to Jesus and praying that you would respond, that you would put fa- your faith in Christ. Um, one of the things that I don't want us to be, what I don't want our, our main goal and our focus and our aim um, is to become the church that has uh, gathered enough members that we have climbed the hill of church membership and we get to put our flag at the top of that hill. Um, I, I am eternally grateful for the local churches in this area. I'm grateful for what Victory Worship does, and I'm grateful for what First Baptist does, and I'm grateful for what Henning does, and I'm grateful for what Houston River does, and I'm grateful for what Wesley does. Like I'm grateful for the evangelical churches in our area, uh, and, and, and so we're not about transfer membership. That's not how we want to see the kingdom grow. Uh, we want to see the kingdom grow by people who are far away from Jesus coming to know Jesus and putting their faith in him and following him. Uh, and that's our goal. And so we've been called to a, a specific, uh, particular place and time here uh, in this community at this time uh, to do that very thing, to encourage people to follow Jesus in the way we love people, the way we love one another, and the way we worship God, the way we make much of him. Um, so that's why we're here in, the, in this gospel that we speak about. We use that term a lot, um, and, and I try to define it and to clarify it every opportunity I get. The gospel is exactly what it says it is. It is good news. Uh, it, it's, it's good news uh, because without it, uh, there's nothing but bad news. We're in the dark. We're dead without Jesus, uh, that we can't obtain the righteousness that God uh, requires and deserves, and the worship that he desires and, and, uh, and d- deserves also uh, without Christ, without coming through Christ, our mediator. Um, and so the good news is that God has provided in Christ a way back to him. For us who are all far off from him, he has welcomed us through Christ back into his family. Uh, and, and that comes through putting our faith in Jesus. That's good news that we don't have to, but Christ has already done so. And so our faith in him, we are given his righteousness, we're giving his right standing in, with God, uh, and he has taken our unrighteousness and he has carried it to the grave uh, to be buried and to be brought up no more, um, and he has risen to be death so that we don't have to be afraid anymore, that we are eternally with Christ, held with Christ uh, forever in God's family. Um, that's good news. Uh, so it's, it's good news, and, and if you know that, and if you've put your faith in that, if you've if you said, I've, I've laid all my yeses on the table to, to Christ, then that news also becomes urgent news, right? It becomes, it becomes urgent news because if you check out your friends list uh, of, of all of the people that you associate yourself with, that you spend your time with, um, if they're all Christians, I want to remind you that there are people that are within your reach, people that God put places you in and in the center of every week, every day, uh, whose hearts have not been made alive by, by God. Who, people who are far off from God. People who are lost. Who, or, or people who believe that they are Christians because their parents were Christians. People who believe that they might belong to Jesus um, because they don't do stuff. Like they don't drink and they don't stay out past 12 and they don't say bad words and things like that. Uh, you might have friends like that who assume that they're Christian just because of their moral behavior. Um, and so God has put you in places um, for that purpose, that the gospel is needed 
um, in this room just as much as it is in this community. Right? So we need to continually be reminded of the gospel as well. And the gospel needs to continually uh, be spoken and lived out. Uh, we want the good news to be put on display that Christ uh, has made a way that, that you, you don't have to live in bondage, you don't have to live in fear, and you don't have to be dead to your sin any longer, that he has overcome that. And so let me remind you that also you may be uh, in a circle where you're just kind of in a Christian bubble and you don't have really or you don't really associate yourselves with people who aren't believers, who aren't followers of Jesus, that if you just really kind of checked you know, checked your mail this morning to see who, who do you associate yourselves with the most. Um, is it all just Christians? And I want to challenge you as we go through this, this message this morning that on the back side of this, I would hope that you would be challenged and encouraged to associate yourself with some lost people, some people who don't believe in the claims of Christ, the people who, who don't have, they haven't put their faith in Christ. And so there's that group, and then there's a, another group, and I don't know if you pay much attention to what's going on around you, but our society is becoming more and more post-Christian. What does post-Christian mean? It means that the church isn't the loudest voice in the room anymore. Okay, we don't have the loudest megaphone anymore in our world, in this community, in our city, in, in this state, in this country, in the, on the globe. We Christians, by far, are less and less influential in society now. And so that's what it means for a society that we live in to be post-Christian, to say, I don't identify myself with Christ. I come from a heritage that did that. That was kind of yesterday's news, and today thinking's a little bit more free, and you know what? You can just kind of really you know, make a God out of whatever you want and worship it, and, and no one should be judging you about that. You're your own person. So we live in a culture and in a society like that, and so um, my hope is for that those of you who do believe the claims of Christ and have committed your life to those claims, that you would have a lot of friends in both of these camps, a lot of friends who, who don't believe in Jesus or who might think they believe in Jesus but have a wrong understanding of the gospel, and people who just are flat out open with it and say, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it, I, you, that's you, and that's cool, and we can be friends, but I'm not buying this whole Christianity thing. I would hope that you have lots of friends in both of those camps. And if you don't, I want to encourage you to get some friends in both of those camps. Associate yourself with people in both of those camps. And so we're going to be talking about evangelism and encouraging people to follow Jesus and pointing to Jesus and, and having them see Jesus at the same time, I want to remind you some of the stuff that we covered last week uh, as we talked about uh, generosity and giving is that God doesn't need our assistance. Like God doesn't need us to see that his purpose and plan gets done, but he has included us. He has, he has made a choice to include us and invite us into his plan, and he has fixed it so that we kind of have to take him up on the offer. He's kind of fixed the whole thing to where, it, just like, if, like I said, if you, if you haven't uh, heard last week's sermon, please go listen to it because we covered a lot of this. But God is sovereign in salvation, right? And we, we talked about that. Uh, at the same time, no one will call upon the name of the Lord for that salvation unless someone hears the gospel being preached. And so he's kind of wired it so that here we are, part of his plan of calling people to himself, saving people. 
And so the same goes as we think about evangelism, as we think about uh, pointing people to Jesus, is that understand that he doesn't need our assistance, right? But he's asked us to participate in his purpose of reconciling and redeeming this world through the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, we get to play a part in that. And so as we jump in, let me just highlight this. Um, I don't have a, a, a specific agenda today other than being obedient to the word. Uh, so today it's about pointing people to Jesus, and so we're going to be obedient. We're going to walk through that text, and we're going to talk about that. Next week it might be something about Jesus turning water into wine, and guess what? When we get to that point, we're going to talk about that. We're going to be obedient to the Scripture. So I don't have an agenda that I'm trying to plug away at or trying to come around a topic and grab a bunch of verses from all over Scripture and try to build this uh, smorgasbord of, of sermon notes so that I can drive a point home and convince you of something. I'm just, the only agenda that I have today is to be obedient to this word. And so that's what I just want to lay before you uh, to know that, that, that today we're going to be looking at a few people in our text uh, that has, they, they help us when we look at their lives and we look at their responses to Jesus. How they, how, how are we to engage the seekers and the skeptics in our society today? How, how do we do that? What does it look like for us to do that? And so we're going to start verse 35. We're just going to kind of piggyback where we left off two weeks ago. This is kind of where we, where we stopped week four. Uh, and so here we're picking up in verse 35. It says, the next day again, John, this is John the baptizer, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? I love that. I love that Jesus turns around and say, hey, come along, blindly follow me, and we're going to just go, and it's going to be a great deal. Just come. It's going to be magic. You're going to love it. Jesus stops and looks at him and says, what do you want? What are you looking for? Because if you're looking for comfort and if you're looking for selfish things, they're not here. And so here's, here's what he says. And they say to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So their response is, we, we want to come spend time with you, Jesus. We want to come... We want to come sit at your feet. We want, to come, we want to understand who you are. And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So uh, looking, we're going to look at three different people through this text today. We're going to look at John the baptizer. Uh, we're going to look at Andrew and then we're going to look at Philip. And we're just going to take these and we're going to walk through them and see how they respond to Jesus. How they, how they engage Jesus. And so the first one we saw in the text was John the baptizer, where we left off last or two weeks ago. The first thing you notice here uh, that I, I want to point out is that um, secure leaders point to Jesus. They don't point to themselves, right? And you see that with John the, John the baptizer. Like, you remember that he, he has an awesome ministry going on, right? John, is, he's got some things kicking down there in the wilderness, and there's people like flocking down there to see him and to hear his message and to be baptized and to just, they want to see the show, right? Um, and so he's, he's kind of gaining a, a pretty good following, and he's being a little bit influential. Um, and we learned that the, two weeks ago. He's gaining major ground. And so when this happens, these ministry leaders, right, they show up. They want to know what's going on, what, what's going on here. And I just want to maybe say that that kind of happens today. Um, ministry leaders, uh, if someone seems to be successful in ministry, they tend to um, study their ways of ministry um, because they see lots of people, lots of attendance, lots of attention. Um, and so our society translates that as success. 
And so you would, you, we have leaders and, and, and minister, ministers and, and pastors who say, I think that that person is doing a great job because they have such a huge following, and so I'm going to study the ways of their ministry and try to mirror some of those in, in hopes that I would be a successful uh, church leader as well. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, and what makes, uh, makes all this different, uh, different from today's response here is that what you saw with John the baptizer is he intentionally decreases, right? As his, as his following grows and Jesus shows up on the scene, he's pointing to Jesus all the while he's shrinking into the background and Jesus increases. And that's the words that John used, I must decrease so that he may increase, um, and so you see him doing the opposite of what our society and our culture would do uh, for church leaders, and it's very, um, it's very tempting. Uh, I just want to put that out there to, to, to try to gain that kind of notoriety and, and what we would define as success when it's, it's really not success, uh, but that's what we see it as. And so here is John with, with two of his disciples, and a little, a little bit of careful study would say that these are probably um, it's probably Andrew and John, uh, John the Beloved, the one who wrote this letter. It's probably these two guys who's sitting with John the Baptizer at this time. Um, and he's, you know, there he is. He's like, there's, there's behold, the, the Lamb of God, right? He points to Jesus. He shows them who Jesus is. These guys have been following John. They've been studying under John. They've been working with him. And then all of a sudden, here's John, and he sends who probably his two best guys, like his most prominent disciples at this point, that's the ones that he picks to send with Jesus. So he's secure enough in his leadership to say, I'm going to take the, the best people that I have and, and, and follow Jesus, like point them to Jesus, and I decrease and, and he increases. And so there's something about leadership that you have to realize. Uh, and I'm talking to a room that has community group leaders, pastors, uh, those who, who lead in all sorts of areas in our church and in your job and wherever you find yourself, um, we can tend to start believing our own hype. Like, to, we, we kind of start thinking much of ourselves that, you know what, people probably need me instead, more instead of Jesus. You know, no, no one would intentionally say that, but our actions and our attitudes would sometimes formulate into that. And so what I hope that we've conveyed here um, as a church and as church leadership, we have a strong conviction um, about how we're led, that we exist primarily, primarily to help you figure out how to point people to Jesus. And that's what we want. So at the end of the day, when we all walk away from here, hopefully, if we've, if we've done well and we've honored God, that Jesus would be lifted up and that no one else would be lifted up. And so we try to put things in place and we try to lead as a church uh, uh, that, that, that doesn't put an emphasis on anyone but Christ. And so remember that as you lead your community groups. Remember that as you stand here and share the word of God with people. Remember that as you care for people. And then remember that especially as you go into the community. You don't want this community thinking much of you. You want this community thinking much of Jesus. And so we're always and ever pointing to him and showing the love of Jesus. Saying it's, it's about Jesus. It's about him. He must increase and we must decrease. And so we see here that John is very, very confident Enough in his leadership to just send his best guys to, with Jesus. Take them. It, you, take them. You deserve them. And so I, I, I touched on this two weeks ago when we talked more about John the, the baptizer. But you know what? You and I are so wrapped up in what people think of us. 
And a lot of us wouldn't admit that. Like, we wouldn't just outright say that. But every single one of us have, have a problem with this. We're so wrapped up in what people think of us. And you know what? This is, I would say that this is one of the reasons why we don't point our friends to Jesus. Our friends who are skeptics or seekers or, or who are just completely turned off to the claims of Christ. We, we don't point them to Jesus because we have this innate desire in us to be liked and to be accepted and to be wanted. And if we shift gears on our friends like that, we're liable to lose them or they're liable to think less of us. And we're afraid of that. We're, we're terrified of our friends because of that, because they wouldn't see us as the hip person anymore. They wouldn't see us as the funny person anymore. They wouldn't see us as the smart person anymore if I did turn the tables and want to share my faith with a friend of mine. And that's the reality. And I think many people struggle, struggle with this. And let me just remind all of us today that Christianity is not cool. It is not cool. It's not the hip and sleek thing at all. I mean, the Bible would actually say that the gospel is a foolish me message and it's folly to those who are perishing. Like, it's a, it's a foolish thing Christianity is. And so we'll only want to associate ourselves as long as it seems to be the thing, the cool thing, the accepted thing, and, and Lord forbid that someone would think less of us if they found out that I, that I am a faithful person, that I do want to follow Jesus with my whole heart and my whole life, and I do want to encourage other people to see Jesus and to follow Jesus, and if I try to even mention that to a friend who might think less of me, then I just choose not to. How bad do you have to hate your friend? How bad do you have to hate your friend? And so it's not a cool thing, and you will never be able to point your friends to Jesus if you struggle with this. If you struggle with wanting to be accepted and wanting to be liked and wanting to be well thought of, you'll have a hard time pointing your friends to Jesus because the Christian message is not a cool message at all. And so we'll use the example set by John the baptizer. Remember, we covered four things about him, and the main one was that his identity is found in Christ. That's, that's what we learn about him, that his identity is found in Christ, his humility is found in the presence of Jesus, that his, his desire and motivation to do what he's doing comes from the love that Christ has shown him, and he is just flat out enamored by the beauty of who Jesus is. And so we looked at that. That was the characteristics of John the Baptist. That We said, okay, what is it that makes this guy the greatest guy in the world, that Jesus would refer to him that way? And those are the things that we, that we learned about him, that first of all, he didn't give a rip about what people thought. His identity was found in Christ. And you, you can pick up on some of the things. The guy was just out in the middle of nowhere doing some craziness, man. He didn't care what people thought. And, I mean, he was calling out, prominent leaders in the community like he was really doing some damage to their ministry and to their influence uh, and he didn't care and he was passionate about Jesus and in, in the face of Jesus what should happen with all of us is we should shrink in humility at the fact that Jesus would even look on us the fact that he would do what he did in sacrificing for us and just be blown up by the beauty of Jesus as we stand in the presence of him. And that's where we see John. We take these keys from him. And so, so practically speaking, let me just say, church, 
I'm not challenging you and encouraging you to be salespersons. That's not what, that's not what we're, we're after here. Of course, I want, you to, I want you to bring people to meet Jesus, of course. Yes, I want you to point people to Jesus and to show them how irresistible he is. I want you to do those things. And so John's encouraging, as, he, as he's encouraging people to follow Jesus and, and showing that, you know what, our identity is, is found in Christ. His identity, our identity is found in Christ and not in what uh, we perceive them to be or what people might think we are. Like, uh, my identity is not found in, in here's John the Baptist uh, preaching a, a, a message of repentance and baptism, pointing to Jesus. That's not where his identity is found. His identity wasn't found in how awesome of a disciple maker he was. Uh, his identity wasn't found in how sharp he was with the leaders of, uh, of the community. His identity was found in Christ. And so that's how John encourages us to point others to Jesus. And so the second person we'll look at is Andrew. Look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. And so Andrew has a lot to tell us about pointing people to Jesus here. It does, it, we might have just brushed over it. You might not saw it, but we're going we're gonna to kind of break it down. First of all, he just spends one day with Jesus. He spends one day with Jesus, and in that short period of time, he becomes so blown away with Jesus that the first thing he does is go and find his brother and tell him, you got to come see Jesus. you got to come see this guy. The Messiah has come. And the one thing that, that, that I'm a, that's just admirable to me um, is that there's no real indication in Scripture that Andrew is this dynamic and powerful speaker. Like, we don't get that anywhere. We never see Andrew preach a sermon in the New Testament. We never get that from Andrew. We never see him stand up in front of a crowd and proclaim a testimony or a witness about Jesus as far as we know. So, I mean, like, he's not the Billy Graham of the bunch right now. He's not the one who is just kind of out front and, and just preaching to thousands the gospel of Jesus. Um, we get them, almost kind of get the impression from Scripture that he's a little bit reserved, a little bit quiet, a little bit shy, maybe. But he is always, always bringing people to Jesus. Every time he comes up in Scripture, he's bringing people to Jesus. He's not doing it from the mountaintops. He's just, as he meets people, as he goes, he's bringing them to Jesus. He starts with his own brother here in our text today. And you will see later in John chapter 6 that it was Andrew who brought the young boy to Jesus with the bread and the fish that fed the multitudes. And if you go a little bit further in John chapter 12, you would see that there was a group of curious Greeks uh, who wanted to know about Jesus. And so they came to Philip and they said, hey, we want to understand the claims uh, of Jesus and what's going on. And so Philip goes to none other than Andrew and says, hey, Andrew, there's these guys here and they want to know about Jesus. What do you think we should do? Well, duh. We're going to bring them to Jesus. That's what Andrew does. And so that's, they carry this group to, to see Jesus. And so here's my point. Evangelism does not include this strict list of requirements and, and, and specific steps and tasks that, that means you have to be a great public speaker, that you have to be a seminary graduate, 
Uh, it, it doesn't mean any of those things, or you don't have to be a, a professional holy man. 99% of the New Testament where we see evangelism happening is, is really found in the everyday missional attitudes of the followers of Jesus. That's what we see all throughout the New Testament. It's not this uh, big event that, that they come around. It's just in the everyday missional lifestyle of the early Christians. And so evangelism at its very, very core is realizing the people around you, right? It's to realize the people around you who are in your immediate reach who might need to be brought to Jesus. And so think about that. As, I'm, as, I, as we're talking about this today, think about those people in your immediate reach right now who may need to be brought to Jesus, who may need to be shown who Jesus is, that you might need to open your mouth and, and forsake your identity and whatever it is you've got them fooled with and show them Jesus, bring them to Jesus. And we don't do this very well today, and that's why I'm kind of pushing it on you like I am is because I know that we're, we're, not, we're not accustomed to doing this. Like, think about it. We don't have a rhythm or a habit of evangelism. We ha- we're pretty good at just serving people, but if we don't ever open our mouths and speak about the glories and the beauty of Jesus, we've done nothing. We haven't accomplished anything. And so how do we get there? How, do we, how, do we, how have we gotten to where we are where we don't even speak about Jesus with our friends who might need to be shown who Jesus is? How do we get there? Is it because we're, we may not be too impressed with Jesus? Are we impressed with Jesus? At all? Does he matter at all? Or is he just a good idea? For, for many of you in this room, you've heard the gospel a thousand times. And sadly, you're just not real moved by it. You just, it's, it's, a, it's whatever. It's, you know, it's the same thing I've always heard. I'm just, just going to take it in. Good to hear about it. And I'm going to go on about my day. And some of you have been in church since you were fetuses. You've been singing songs. You've been rehearsing prayers. You've been reading scriptures. You've been doing all of those things and nothing. It's cold. doesn't really matter. You're not impressed anymore. Is that the reason why we have such a hard time telling our friends about Jesus? Because he just doesn't impress us? That it's, it's nothing? What I see throughout Scripture is that people share Jesus, right? They share Jesus with their friends, with their neighbors, with the city, and they, they don't do it to, to get a gold star, right? They don't do it to get their name put on the board with, with a golden star by it, that they, they accomplish something. They're not trying to earn God's love because, hey, believer, brother, sister, you've already earned God's love and putting your faith in Jesus. That's it. And so he, he can't love you any less in Christ than he loves you right now. So all of your labor and all of your um, work that you're, you're, you're doing in the name of Jesus, know that it's not to obtain uh, right standing with God and acceptance with God. He loves you in Christ. And so that's not why they did it. And I'll just show you this. You know, the, the early church would share Jesus because he is the best thing in their life. 
I know that sounds real simple and all, but the reason the New Testament church was able to take off the way it was able to take off and spread around the known world like it did was because Jesus was the best thing in their life. And they were impressed with Jesus, that, that they were passionate about Jesus. In, in the early church, um, in Acts chapter 3 and, and 4, Peter and John were headed off to pray at the temple. And as they got to the temple, there was this lame beggar that was there at the gate. Um, and the guy said, hey, do you have any money? you have some food or something like that? The guy was crippled. He couldn't walk, right? And I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but, but Peter just stopped for a minute. And Peter just, he, he, he grabbed the guy's face and he looked at him in his eyes and he says, no, we don't, the only thing we have is Jesus. The only thing we have is Jesus. And guess what? That is all you need. Get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. And they walk into the temple. And Peter begins to preach and to address the crowd and to talk about Jesus. And the religious leaders, the priests, would show up. And they want to shut this thing down. This guy's talking about Jesus, right? And so they arrest them for talking about Jesus and for, and for healing this beggar. And then in verse 7 of chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 7, it says, And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So they're questioning them now about this healing, what happened. Well, how did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we were to be examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, that they weren't seminary students and professional holy men and priests and, and pastors and ministry leaders, that they were just common fishermen who were uneducated, they were astonished because common people don't do this kind of stuff. But they do in Jesus' family. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them had nothing to say in opposition. I love that. I love this text. But when, when they had commanded them to leave the, leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what, what shall we do with these men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And here we go. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They cannot stop talking about Jesus. Take us to the cross. Crucify our bodies Stone us to death, but we can't stop talking about Jesus. We understand that we're not the, the pop theology today, that we're not the pop culture, that we're not, we're, our message isn't the most desired message. We get that, but we cannot stop talking about Jesus. 
And so do what you will. This is how we're going to roll. And so Andrew sits with Jesus for one day, and he cannot get over it. One day, and he can't get over who Jesus is. Are you, are you at all impressed by Jesus? Are you impressed by Jesus at all? Do you even care? Does the message of what Christ has done to reconcile and redeem you to the Father mean anything? Or is it just falling on a cold heart? What I find to be probably most true in, in these kinds of cases where those would be cold or indifferent toward the gospel is that they don't really believe it's for them. So if you're cold toward the gospel and indifferent toward the gospel, it might be that you don't, you don't feel like you need it that bad. Like you're a pretty good person, right? And the gospel, you know, you know what? The, the, the cross, that, that's for prostitutes and that's for adulterers and that's for alcoholics and murderers. But I'm a pretty good person and so the reason you may or may not be cold or indifferent toward the gospel is that you don't feel like you need the cross. You feel like you've got it going on, like you're maintaining a pretty good standing based on your behavior and how well people like you, what people think of you. And Scripture would teach us that every single one of us, our best efforts is nothing but garbage at a, at a garbage heap before a holy God. That's what Scripture would teach us, that, that our, righteous, our attempts at righteousness, our righteous acts, they're, they're disgusting to God. Like he, he, doesn't even want us, he doesn't even want us to try that. Don't even try that. How offensive is it that I sent my son to cover the sin and the shame that you would just turn a blind eye to that and say, hey, look at what I've done, God. How wicked. But we all do that. In one way or the, another, we, we do that. And so you can only fully embrace the cross when you understand what your sin has accomplished. The only way we, we can own the cross for what, what we've done is when we understand just how grave our sin is. That Christ had to, had to do the ultimate sacrifice. He had to pay the ultimate sacrifice to cover that. And I believe that when we don't understand and embrace what happened at the cross, it's because we don't understand our sin. We don't understand how deadly our sin is. You want to get passionate about Jesus? You want to get passionate about the gospel? Own the cross. Realize what has been accomplished there. Realize what Jesus has done on your behalf, that, that your sin nature had you far from God, that had you in the dark, that you were dead in your sin, and Christ came, and Christ took on the cross, and Christ made you alive. And, he, and every one of us needs that. We all need that. And so when you realize the, the, the depravity of, of, of your life, of your, your own depravity and sinfulness, and, and what the cross accomplished, right? That your lips will not stop singing and saying the glories of Jesus when you realize that. So a big question today maybe is just, um, is repentance in order? Is, is it time for repentance? Like think about this individually. 
Is, is, is Jesus just one of the things that you have in your life? And is, and is it time for you to repent of that? And this is the only way I believe that you, your heart will be lit up for Jesus, that you would become passionate about Jesus and would not be able to stop talking about Jesus is when we repent and come clean before God and make Jesus our everything. And so it's never difficult to talk about the things that you're passionate about. I can sit here and talk to each one of you and in 10 minutes tell you what you're passionate about because we talk about the things that we're passionate about. That's the conversations that we, we have. And so Jesus, he wants the affections of your heart. That's what Jesus wants. And, and your witness and your evangelism and your pointing people to Jesus flows out of that, flows out of your affections for him. And, and that's all. And so with Andrew here, he's with Jesus. He's moved by Jesus, and he begins pointing people to Jesus. That's how he responds with just a little bit of time. And he starts with those in his immediate circle, right? He doesn't, he doesn't go and find strangers. He goes to the people who he's closest to and begins there. He says, you've got to come see you got to come see Jesus. You've got to come see the Messiah. And, and just a bonus round, maybe, make, just kind of... We're, gonna, we're not going to stay here long, uh, but does anybody know what the name Andrew means? Name means manly. Andrew means manly. That's what his name means. And so can, can I take a minute just maybe to talk to the fellas? Uh, while, while evangelism and pointing people to Jesus is an, a privilege and a responsibility of every follower of Jesus, man and woman, uh, just maybe for the fellas for just a minute, um, our culture defines masculinity a number of different ways, right? How, how nice of a toy you've got or how big of a bank account you've got or your position at work or how big your uh, biceps are or all kinds of crazy stuff like that, right? Like the, 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 our society, our culture will tell you masculinity means this. Or our culture will not <laughs> point to passionate followers of Jesus as something masculine. Like, they never do that. And so we kind of own that, and we go, like, yeah, you know, like, I, gotta, I can't just be, like, full on, full on with Jesus because uh, that's not real manly. Our society doesn't see that as a, as a masculine thing. To be manly in Scripture, here, what we're seeing today, the only thing that we, we pick up on here is to be stunned by Jesus and to point people to Jesus, that's our, that's our definition of manly here. And so in our society, um, and, and it's like it was for me, that the wife and the kids are committed followers of Jesus while the guy is drugged to church, usually against his will. That was my story. That's the story of many married people I see, that, that the, the, the mom and the wife and the children are committed to following Jesus, and dad's just kind of playing a backseat. Right, and, and Jesus had to get a hold of my heart because of that. And the only thing in Scripture that we see uh, about the guy who is described as manly is that he loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. And so let's, let's keep trucking along here. Verse 43, uh, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida and the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. So the third person I want to look at is Philip. Um, Philip is amazed by Jesus' intentional uh, pursuit of him, how he pursued him and found him. Just if, you, if you're a person who writes in their Bible, who circles things in their, in their Bible, uh, it says the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. Won't you circle that? He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. And now here you go. Philip found Nathaniel. So you circle that one. See, these aren't accidents that are showing up like this. That Jesus found Philip. Philip found Nathaniel. And this is how it goes. This is how the gospel is multiplied. Jesus gets the hold of someone's heart, and they carry that name, and they go point people to Jesus. So he's amazed. Philip is blown away by this. And the gospel tells us, hey, you're far off from God. And you're running away from God. And by his grace, um, he has reached, while you were at your farthest point from God and still running from him, he pursued you. He came reaching for you. He takes the initiative and comes after you. That's what the gospel would say, that God is the one that finds you in your brokenness and in your sin. You're not reaching for God. God's reaching for you. And that's what we see here, and this is what happens to Philip. Jesus comes after him, and Jesus finds him, and Philip's res he responds in the only way possible when you realize what has just happened, that Jesus has come for you while you were far off and turned away running from God. And when Jesus snatches you, when you realize what has happened, the only response here is that you pursue people who need this kind of grace, and you point them to Jesus. Pursued people pursue people. Redeemed people go on a rescue mission for people. That's how this works. And so we see in the next verses here the classic skeptic, right? You see that, that, that here's um, Nathaniel, and he says, seriously, dude, like, can anything, come, anything good come from Nazareth? Like, that's, Nazareth is this backwoods, um, rural, redneck part of the world. Surely the Messiah wouldn't come from there. As a matter of fact, I think I read in my Bible where the Messiah is actually going to come from Bethlehem. So what are you even talking about? And so Philip's response to Nathaniel's skepticism is not debate. Let me prove to you that he is the one who, who I told you he was. He doesn't spool off into a debate. He doesn't have a nasty attitude toward Nathaniel and say, oh, you're just... You're just, you know, shallow-minded, and, and you're not thinking about this, and you're selfish thinking. He doesn't go there. His only response is, well, come and see. I'm not going to try to convince you here, Nathaniel. I'm not going to try to debate you. I'm not going to try to prove you wrong. I'm not going to try to shame you and belittle you and reduce you. I just want you to come see Jesus. Just come and see and, and, and see for yourself. It's him. And so if you're on, if you're on purpose about pointing people to Jesus, when you start to do this, if, you're, if you become passionate about telling people and pointing people to Jesus, I guarantee you, you're going to run into some skeptics. It's, it's going to happen. And so here's our, our model for how we can respond. The last thing they need from you is to trick them or to debate them into putting their faith in Jesus. That's the last thing they need from you. They, what they need most is to see Jesus, and they need you to help them see Jesus. That's what they need most, because it's Jesus who saves people. 
not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. He's the one who saves people. Your number one job is not to trick people into following him or to, to close the deal, so to speak, uh, on, 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 on getting them to say a, a prayer or an incantation or something when they don't really even believe in Jesus. Like, we're not car salesmen. We're not. Our job is to point people to Jesus and encourage them to follow him. Come and see Jesus and how my family interacts with one another. Come and see Jesus and how our community group does life together. Come and see Jesus and how our church worships God together. I come see Jesus in those places. I'm not trying to debate you. I'm not trying to convince you. I just want you to come see. Come see Jesus. The great news is that you and I are not responsible for resurrecting dead hearts. None of us have the ability to do that. Only God does, and that's on him to take care of. Our responsibility is to tell people and to take them to Jesus. That's it. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So before we ever take a step toward telling people about Jesus or pointing them to Jesus, God is working in their midst already. He's already there among them. And before Philip did anything, Jesus already knew Nathaniel, and he had already searched Nathaniel's heart. All of these things were already in place. God was at work for what was about to take place. God was already working in that situation. So here's the deal. I think our faith needs to probably be strengthened by this. We need to be encouraged that God's doing things with our friends who don't believe in Jesus. Like he's working in those relationships already and he's calling us just to invite them to come and see Jesus, point them to Jesus. I'm already, work, I'm already working in their hearts. I've already got some things going on. I've already searched their heart. I know where they're at in their life. I just need you to go and encourage them to see Jesus, show them Jesus. You and I have friends with whom God is doing something in their life and we have to stop for just a minute and listen to our friends to even know that. Jesus was accused of so many things. He was called so many names, but one of them that I can't ever shake is that the name he was called, a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. Let me tell you something. Maybe let me put it in the form of a question. Is is this criticism that people can throw at you? Is this a name that someone can call you? He hangs out with those people. He spends his time with that crowd. If not, why not? Why not? All we see in this text is relational evangelism. That's all we see is people in their everyday missional life making friends and pointing them to Jesus. And how will you ever get to particip- participate in what God is doing in the world or in the life of someone if you have no unbelieving friends? How will you ever get to participate in God's plan of redeeming lost people if you don't know or spend time with lost people? He wants to use us. 
He wants to use us to point people to Jesus. You will never get to see God resurrect a friend's dead, cold heart if you don't have any friends or all your time is spent with your Christian friends. Now, I'm not saying forsake Christian community. You all know how vital we think that is. But if we don't have any lost people in our circle, if we're not, if we're not encouraging people and pointing people to Jesus, we're going to miss out on what God's doing in the world and in someone's life. God's going to get it done. He's inviting us to participate. And we, we don't want to miss out on this. And so Jesus drops this bombshell on Nathaniel. And this is the reason for all of our evangelism, all of our pointing people to Jesus and encouraging people to follow Jesus. Look at verse 51, and we're going to close up. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's reaching back in the Old Testament, and he's pulling up two stories in the Old Testament that point to this text. Okay, and they're both found in the book of Genesis. Uh, one story is the story that you may be familiar with, the Tower of Babel. Where, where mankind uh, thought it would be good that they could, they could make a name for themselves and build this, this avenue to God, that they could, they could create a way to get to God, right? And, and so that was one story he's pointing at, and he's trying to say here, you and I cannot get to God on our own initiative, right? So he's, he's referring to these Old Testament stories, and the second one was this story where Jacob was running from his his brother, he was in the wilderness, he was living in the wilderness, and he, and he fell asleep, and he had this vision, this dream, where he, he saw this, this ladder come down from heaven, right? And he saw these things where angels are ascending and descending, and this changes his life. And he says, whoa, this place is holy. I'm going to name this place Bethel. This is the house of God here. So he has this, this moment in time where he sees this vision. And so what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel here, Nathaniel. You, you can't get to God. I will bring God to you, and I will bring you to God. And so this, here's the deal. All of our evangelism is centered around pointing people to Jesus. And the, 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 the goal is not so that we would see a lot of people here. The goal is not so that we would be thought well of that we would be popular, the goal is that people would be reconciled to God, that God has made a way for them, and through Christ and through the proclamation of the gospel, that they would come to profess Jesus as their Savior and be redeemed and restored in their relationship with God. That's, that's the whole point. And so let us not get caught up in, in seeking um, self-satisfaction to be trying to, we're trying to find our identity in other places, we point to Jesus. And we point to Jesus so that they might know and love Christ, his sacrifice, be reconciled to God, be part of the family of God. Make much of him here among us in our neighborhood to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ, making disciples and mobilizing the gospel. That's, that's why we're here. That's why we exist. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll close. Father, we come to you um, this morning.